Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Our passage for this morning is Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Again, that's Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. In modern psychology, there's a phenomenon that's labeled groupthink. Psychology today describes this phenomenon as follows. It says groupthink occurs when a group of well-intentioned people make irrational or non-optimal decisions that are spurred by the urge to conform or the discouragement of dissent. This problematic or premature consensus may be fueled by a particular agenda or simply because group members value harmony and coherence above rational thinking. In a groupthink situation, group members refrain from expressing doubts and judgments or disagreeing with the consensus. In the interest of making a decision that furthers their group cause, members may ignore any ethical or moral consequences. The problems associated with this decision-making process are manifold. Psychology Today continues, they say, Groupthink fosters a strong us-versus-them mentality that prompts members to accept group perspectives in the heat of the moment, even when these perspectives don't necessarily align with their personal values. When the group identity is threatened, groupthink decision-making can be rushed and destructive. Of course, I don't think we probably need modern psychologists to enlighten us about the existence of groupthink, right? Because we've all witnessed this phenomenon before. The Jewish Holocaust is probably the first and most obvious example that comes to mind. We find it hard to understand how an entire nation of perfectly normal, rational people can suddenly be motivated to, put, to support something as blatantly evil as the extermination of an entire race? The answer lies, in part, in groupthink. The Second Iraq War is often cited as another example. When the argument was being made to invade Iraq in 2003, the idea seemed to have support from many, if not most, Americans. And yet, when the intelligence that served as the basis for those arguments later proved to be faulty, you suddenly had all these people saying, you know, I actually didn't think it was a very good idea to begin with. I just didn't say it. It's really crazy how this works. Very often with groupthink, the dissenting party is actually in the majority. Most people will disagree with what's going on, but they're all too afraid to voice their disagreement for fear of being cast out of the group. They don't realize that other people disagree as well. They just assume that they're in the minority. But then through some circumstance of events, the consensus opinion is compromised, and suddenly you have this mass of people that are voicing their opinion after the fact, saying, you know, I always thought that was a bad idea. You've seen this happen before, haven't you? I'd imagine you've probably even been a party to groupthink on more than one occasion. Perhaps you've even seen it occur in the church. And oh yes, this, this can occur in the church. In fact, it's a very common occurrence amongst religious people. It's so common, in fact, that Jesus even specifically warned his disciples against its pervasive influence. You know when Jesus warned the disciples against, quote, the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, in Matthew 17, it's identified as the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. And in Luke 12, he calls it their hypocrisy before then going on to instruct the disciples on how not to be intimidated by their tactics. The Pharisees thrived on the notion of consensus. They thrived on the fear of exclusion and isolation. 
I mean, just ask the man, uh, the parents of the man born blind in John 9. They, they knew who healed their son, but they wouldn't say it. And John tells us why not. He says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. The desire to belong is an incredibly strong desire. And Israel's religious leaders obviously knew how to use this desire to squash dissent. That's what Jesus is referring to when he says, Beware of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. So yes, this can happen in the church. There are probably questions about your faith that you're afraid to ask. There are probably sins that you struggle with that you're afraid to confess. Because at the end of the day, you think you're the only one who thinks the way you do, or you're the only one who struggles with the sins you do, and you're afraid of what will happen to you. You're afraid of the kind of reaction you'll get if you say, you know what, I'm really struggling with this. We obviously need to heed Jesus' warnings about hypocrisy and put off that kind of groupthink if we're ever going to attain to maturity in the faith of Jesus Christ. But did you know that there's a kind of groupthink that's actually very healthy for the church to experience? That's what we're currently discovering as we continue to make our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians. The title of our series, once again, is The Evangelistic Psyche. And that's because in this series we're trying to explore the mindset of the evangelist. The Apostle Paul has been our subject. This is a man who has laid absolutely everything on the line for the sake of the gospel. And in this letter, he's teaching us both by example and by instruction where this kind of passion for the gospel comes from. In the most recent portion of this letter, Paul encourages the Philippians to stand firm for the, go firm for the gospel by turning to a kind of groupthink. Now, this isn't a group think that excludes dissent, quite the opposite, actually. We saw as early as Philippians 1.9 that Paul actually prays that the Philippians' love for one another would abound more and more, quote, with knowledge and all discernment. And as we saw then, the reason why Paul wants the Philippians to abound in love primarily is so that they can grow in all knowledge and discernment. The idea is that love is what enables the sort of dissent that allows the church to grow in its understanding. So again, this isn't a kind of groupthink that squashes dissent. If anything, it actually encourages it. And yet there is a kind of groupthink that should be taking place, Paul explains. We see this concept emerge towards the end of chapter 1, where Paul says in verses 27 through 30, he says, "...only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit." with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of, to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here I still have. It would appear that the church in Philippi is experiencing a very similar sort of persecution what Paul's experiencing in Rome. This probably means it's state-sponsored, and there's a good chance it's due to what's considered to be particularly un-Roman conduct. The church is be apparently beginning to crack and fracture under this pressure, and as Paul hears this report from Rome, he urges the church to be of one mind. It's quite apparent what Paul means by this. 
He's not urging them to merely share the same opinion, to think the same thing in that sense. Though, of course, that would certainly be preferred. He means, rather, that they need to be united towards a common purpose. This comes out at the beginning of chapter 2 when Paul tells the Philippians in verses 1 to 2, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, or as the New American Standard translation puts it, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. The point is not that they share the same opinion, but that they share the same goal, chiefly the proclamation of the gospel to the praise and glory of God. They are, be, they are to be united together in the common defense of the gospel. The dynamics of this type of groupthink are on display in the transition from chapters 1 to 2. First, Paul reminds the Philippians that they are united together against a common enemy. Regarding their persecutors, Paul notes verse 28, he says, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. In other words, he encourages a little bit of an us-versus-them dynamic. The Philippians, remember, were likely good Romans, meaning they probably struggled with the fact that the empire they loved was now persecuting them. In light of that struggle, Paul encourages the Philippians to think afresh about how their faith in the Lordship of Christ transforms their thinking about their former allegiances. They are not Christian Romans. They are Roman Christians. Their identity is rooted in their heavenly citizenship first. Paul reminds them of that. And then second, he encourages them to consider how this new identity unites them together in a common struggle. I mentioned this last week. The particular type of disunity that's taking place in Philippi probably indicates that the Philippians are responding to their persecution by blaming one another. Basically, they're trying to distance themselves from their suffering by distancing themselves from their brothers and sisters in Christ, which they do by saying, you know, this is their fault. It's not Caesar's fault, and it certainly isn't Christ's fault. It's the fault of these rash and even immature Christians, and they shouldn't have to suffer for their mistakes. Paul addresses this type of thinking by pointing to the unity that they share in Christ by virtue of the common bond of the Spirit, and then by pointing to Christ's example of how he approached that type of unity with the Father. The basic idea is that God the Son didn't see the offenses against God the Father and try to avoid any share in the indignity of that offense by declaring, hey, it's not my problem. No, instead he freely surrendered all the rights and privileges that he enjoyed as God and suffered the indignity and even suffering of the cross so that his Father might be glorified in him. And he did this, of course, because he and his Father are one. Well, in the same way, the Philippians' union in Christ through the Spirit means that they should no longer make distinctions among themselves where they see a brother or sister in Christ and declare, hey, that's your problem. No, if they're suffering for Christ, then it's our problem. We are all united towards the same purpose through the bond of the one Spirit. We're all seeking to glorify Christ together. And so if Christ is dishonored and attacked in any of us, it's a problem for all of us. It's our problem. Again, this is the type of group thing that Paul encourages in the Philippians. We are to be united in the same purpose through the one Spirit to the praise and glory of the one and only true God and of His Son, Jesus Christ. 
And so now the question that comes up is, what does this kind of groupthink look like in action? Kelly was actually asking me this question at the conclusion of last week's message during our fellowship meal. She said, okay, Ryan, I see what you're saying about how we're supposed to be united together for the sake of the gospel, but what does that look like practically? I need something concrete. And while I don't think we'll see that question addressed quite in the way that Kelly was hoping for when she asked me that question last week, Paul does address that sort of an issue in this week's passage. He explains what this gospel-centered unity looks like in action. And the way I'd like to frame this discussion is with five symptoms, if you would, of gospel-centered groupthink. You know how a few weeks back I said that Paul's gospel psychosis manifested itself in three symptoms? Well, it's the same with gospel-centered groupthink. Paul identifies at least five symptoms that will accompany this single-minded partnership for the gospel. So if you want to know if you've adopted the kind of unity for the faith that Paul is asking for here, this is an awfully good place to begin. You should be checking to see if these symptoms are manifesting themselves in your life. What are these five symptoms? Let's go ahead and read the passage and find out. Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Paul concludes this exhortation to be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose by saying this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and will rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The first symptom associated with gospel-centered groupthink is this, perseverance. Gospel-centered groupthink produces perseverance. This is really the main symptom of gospel-centered Groupthink. In fact, it's such a significant component in this passage that it's really hard to isolate it to any single one verse or phrase. I mean, it's the whole reason why Paul even bothers to write this passage. Again, he started back in chapter 1, verse 27, saying, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Basically, he addressed this concern about his well-being by saying, starting in verse 12, actually, I'm doing really well. The gospel's advancing. Uh, even more than that, I know that one way or another, my imprisonment is about to end. And I really think I'll be released and come again to see you soon. And then he said, but either way, whether I come and see you again or have to remain here in Rome, I'm going to do great as long as I know that you're standing firm for the, for the gospel. And of course, we already know the reason for this. is because, as we've seen, the main thing that matters to Paul is the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And God is glorified through the repentance of lost sinners. So, so long as the Philippians are standing firm, that's going to bring Paul joy because it means that his suffering is worth it. Now listen to this passage one more time. 
Again, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, do you hear that? Nothing's changed since chapter 1. Paul's still saying the same thing. He's saying he will be encouraged so long as the Philippians persevere in their faith. That's the thing that really brings comfort to Paul in his imprisonment. Not the money that the Philippians have sent to Paul, not material comfort or security or even his freedom, but the knowledge that his spiritual children are flourishing in the faith. And so Paul continues to answer this inquiry about his well-being by saying, I'm doing fine just so long as I know that you're doing fine. So if you want to encourage me, please just stand firm together. You guys see that, right? Verse 12, Paul says, therefore, meaning now based on what I've just said, therefore, my beloved, my dear ones, my friends, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Do you hear that? That's going back to the end of chapter 1, where Paul's talking about what, how he wants to hear about the Philippians, whether he comes and sees them again or is absent. And, and why does he say now much more in his absence? Why, it is even, why is it even more important now in Paul's absence that they live this way? Well, because of what he's about to say. How it encourages Paul in his present circumstances, in his absence. Paul continues, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul wants them to persevere in the faith because their perseverance in the faith will continue to encourage him in his absence. Paul actually continues this idea down in verses 14 to 16 where he tells them to be united in the faith. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The whole point of this statement is the Philippians' perseverance in the faith and for the purpose of encouraging Paul in his imprisonment. That might seem kind of odd, but when you, you have to keep in mind the Philippians are the ones who are inquiring about Paul's well-being. They love this man. They love this man who's really their father in the faith. They've even sent him a financial gift by messenger in order to inquire about his condition. They want to know how to encourage Paul in his current state. Well, Paul says, this is how you can encourage me. Let me know that my labor for the gospel is not in vain. You see that in verse 17, don't you? Paul says, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. He basically says, if all that's going on here in Rome is that you get credit for the gift that you sent to me in my affliction and that I'm being used for that purpose, in that I will rejoice. That's because this is where Paul derives his joy, from the Philippians' perseverance and progress in the faith. So again, that's really the whole point of this section. Paul wants the Philippians to persevere in the faith. And the therefore that starts out in verse 12 indicates that this is the proper result of gospel-centered groupthink. Again, Paul is concerned that they won't stand firm for the faith. And like we saw last week, he's identified this self-centered mindset as the root 
of this lack of perseverance. Or to put it another way, the Philippians aren't standing firm because they aren't standing together. They're making distinctions between my problems and your problems. Paul has just told them in verses 1 to 11 that their union in Christ should lead them to abandon this type of thinking. And now he says, Therefore, my beloved, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, holding fast to the word of life. The idea is that once the Philippians adopt this common way of thinking, this fixation on a common purpose, then they'll stand firm for the gospel. And Paul will be encouraged. Again, this is one of the outcomes of gospel-centered groupthink. In fact, this is the chief outcome of gospel-centered groupthink. And in the symptoms that follow, I think we can understand why. So, so how does this single-minded, unified devotion to the gospel produce this sort of perseverance for the faith? Let's take a look at the next four symptoms and find out. I think these next four symptoms explain the first one. And the second symptom is this. Symptom number two, fear. Or perhaps better stated, awe. Either one could work. Gospel-centered groupthink produces fear or awe in the Christian. We see this come out in verses 12 to 13, where, once again, Paul concludes this admonition to stand together for the gospel by saying, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You know, it's not uncommon to hear this verse brought up in discussions on the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, meaning it's often used to illustrate the fact that the Bible affirms both the concept that man is responsible to obey God and that any obedience he renders comes from God. It's not entirely an either-or, so it's said, but a both-and. We are both responsible and God is sovereign. Again, that's a very common way of using this passage. In fact, uh, I myself, I've made just that sort of a statement using Philippians 4, 12 to 13 often. But I have to tell you, as I was studying these verses this week, I came across a discovery that I think should challenge our perspective on the intent of Paul's meaning with this statement. It comes down in verses 14 to 15, actually, where Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We're going to come back around to those verses and their significance in just a few minutes, but for the moment, I'd just like to point out that it's generally agreed that verse 15 is an allusion to Deuteronomy 32.5. Deuteronomy 32 is where, God, is where Moses teaches Israel a song. It's, a, it's kind of a fun little ditty about um, Israel being a stubborn and stiff-necked people who certainly didn't obey God even when Moses was with them and how therefore they definitely won't obey God after he's gone. Well, in Deuteronomy 32.5, Moses says regarding Israel, they have dealt corruptly with him, meaning God. They've dealt corruptly with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. So Paul is evoking the memory of that verse with this statement about the Philippians being children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And that's interesting for a number of reasons, one of which is the fact that in verse 14, he also encourages them to do all things without grumbling and disputing. 
I mentioned this last week. That language is also very reminiscent of the way that Israel responded to their adversity during the Exodus. Israel comes out of Egypt, and when they're without water, what do they do? They grumble and complain. They say to Moses, what shall we drink? They say, would that we had died in the land, in the, uh, by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, and we, saw, we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. In short, they blame Moses. They say, this is your fault. If you just left us alone, we wouldn't be in this mess. And this grumbling leads to the nation fracturing and dividing. That fracture that was, that was ultimately produced by this grumbling is best illustrated at two different points. One instance, of course, is in the rebellion of Korah. Korah assembles 250 of the chiefs of Israel, and he challenges Moses' authority on the basis that all of Israel is holy and should be able to approach the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle. That episode, of course, is resolved when the earth opens up and swallows those associated with this rebellion, both them and their households. And by the way, if it weren't enough for Israel to grumble over Moses' privilege with God, they also end up grumbling over this too, that God would do such a thing as punish Korah and his co-conspirators. Number 1641 says, But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. And then they turn to approach the tent of meeting. And God is so incensed by their obstinance that he tells Moses, Get away from the midst of this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And Moses and Aaron then have to actually intercede for the people to stop the ensuing plague that God sends upon them for their rebellion. That's one example of fracture in Israel brought about by this grumbling, this rebellion against Moses with Korah. The other instance occurs in Numbers 14. Numbers 13, of course, the spies bring back their report of the land of Canaan. They say it's a great land, but that it's filled with an exceedingly strong people. Numbers 14 says that in their response, they give this um, attitude. Numbers 14, 1 to 4, it says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And then they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And once again, God ends up saying to Moses, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. And once again, Moses is forced to intercede for the people. God listens to his prayer. He doesn't destroy the nation. But he does state that that generation won't enter the promised land. Listen, this is the kind of stuff that Moses was writing about when he said in Deuteronomy 32.5, they've dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. The song of Moses, by the way, Deuteronomy 32, that's a song about how God has a special love for Jacob and was near to them and how it was due to the love that he, that, that same love that he will first discipline and then restore them after they come to repentance. It concludes with these words. It says, Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Now, are you starting to sense a theme here? 
Here is Israel grumbling in the wilderness, straying from God's prophet because of the hardship that they're encountering as they enter into the land of Canaan. And the result is that God disciplines that particular generation such that they are no longer allowed to enter the land because of their rebellion. Now, this is the context that Paul establishes for this verse with this allusion to Israel's grumbling and this reference to Deuteronomy 32.5. And I'd encourage you to read verses 12 to 13 one more time in that light. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Can you start to catch the drift of what Paul is saying now? Verses 12 to 13 aren't really about the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Because when Paul says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, he's speaking less to the fact that God is sovereignly causing the Philippians' growth and sanctification and more to the fact that he has set them apart and now dwells among them and will even discipline them for this purpose. Don't get me wrong, God is sanctifying the Philippians in this passage. It's just that he's doing it in the same way that he did it with Israel in the Old Testament. That's where the fear and the trembling come from in verse 12. You see, in order for this verse to make sense, you have to do something with the therefore at the beginning of verse 12. The therefore indicates that Paul is making a concluding point, meaning the stuff leading up to verse 12 has to lead to this conclusion. And Paul isn't really saying anything that would demand a statement on divine sovereignty and human responsibility leading up to verse 12. But I'll tell you what he does say. Back at the end of chapter 1, he noted that the Philippians needed to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you recall, literally, they are to live as citizens. That's his meaning. They are to conduct themselves in a way that's worthy of their heavenly citizenship. In other words, he points to their calling as Christians. He refers to the fact that they've been set apart by God. They're special. Right after that, he also refers to the fact that it has been granted to them by God. You hear me? By God Right? For God is at work in you, right? Well, here we see how. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. So he points not only to their calling in this particular instance, but even to their purpose. God has granted it to them to suffer for His sake. This should give us a sense of what Paul is driving at when he says that God is working in them, quote, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God has a purpose that He wants to fulfill in this suffering, mainly glorifying His name through their suffering for the sake of Christ. And Paul says all of this while at the same time indicating that the Philippians' common union in Christ, which is established through the corporate indwelling of the Spirit, indicates that the church should face this adversity together. They shouldn't fracture. They shouldn't seek out their own interest. No, they need to suffer together since God has called and now even indwells the body for that purpose. And now verse 12, he says, Therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. And do you see the point? The idea is that just like God saved Israel from Egypt so that they might glorify him, so also has he saved this people for his good pleasure. He has called them and dwelled them so that they might glorify him. And the way that he's done this in this particular instance is through their suffering. God has brought about this trial. It's no one's fault. God has brought about this trial. 
and he's done it so that they can glorify his name through their perseverance in the faith, which they will do as they bind together. They therefore need to work out their salvation, meaning they need to work towards its intended objective for this purpose so that they might persevere in suffering. Now let me ask you, how is God going to then respond if this self-centered bickering causes this people, this people who've been called specifically for his good pleasure, how will he respond if this bickering causes them to fracture and divide and stumble and fall? How will he respond when far from delighting, in him, delighting him with their obedience, they disappoint him with their disobedience? Now do you see why Paul says right after this, do all things without grumbling and disputing? Now do you see why he makes this allusion to Israel and their disobedience? If they're not careful, this infighting is going to cause them to stumble. It's going to cause them to fail, to persevere in the faith. And Israel has already set the pattern for how God deals with the people that he's called near to himself and who yet refuses to glorify his name. And the idea is that he disciplines them, sometimes severely. He won't cast them off entirely, but he will sometimes lay the rod into them so that they will glorify his name. Again, that's the message of the song of Moses. Deuteronomy 32, 36 to 39, Moses says, For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, Where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge? Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See, now that I am... Even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. That's the memory that Paul is invoking here. And that's where the fear and trembling come in verse 12. God disciplines those he loves. He's jealous for them. And so he will see to it that they glorify his name one way or the other. So fear or awe. That's one symptom of gospel-centered groupthink, and it comes from the conditions that produce groupthink. The single-mindedness that Paul is asking for here stems from our identity in Christ and from the union that we share in Christ through the common bond of the Spirit. Just like God set Israel apart to proclaim his name in the Old Testament and then set his tabernacle among them for that purpose, so also has he drawn us near, so near, in fact, that he doesn't just dwell among us in a physical tent. He indwells us by the Spirit. And he's done this so that we can glorify him. It's that understanding that unifies our minds towards a common purpose and unites us together in a common struggle. And it's that same understanding that should also give us cause to fear. For the same God who loved us enough to give his own son so that we could be granted this calling, he surely will not be apathetic when we fail to grow into it. So again, this is the first symptom of gospel group think fear or awe and i think by this point it's probably quite obvious how that symptom produces the main symptom of perseverance let's look now at the next two symptoms i think it's best to look at these next two together and now that we understand what's going on in verses 12 to 13 these next points are going to be much easier to understand and we're going to pick up some speed as we go along here the next two symptoms of gospel-centered group think are this number three is harmony once again, harmony, and symptom number four, witness. Gospel-centered groupthink is accompanied by a strong witness to the faith. 
The symptom of harmony, of course, comes out in verse 14 when Paul urges the Philippians to, quote, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Again, that's part of the problem in Philippi. They're turning their frustrations over their suffering inward. They seem to be blaming each other. They're grumbling against one another in the same way that Israel grumbled against Moses. And they're doing this because they're viewing themselves merely as individuals. They're separating out your suffering from my suffering. Paul, of course, has been trying to extinguish this type of divisive thinking early on in chapter 2. In fact, it's the very reason why he tells them to think as one and share a common purpose. He wants them to be united together in the same common struggle. So it's pretty obvious that if the Philippians can begin to adopt this mindset, if they can stop thinking in terms of mine and yours with reference to their witness in Christ and begin using words like ours instead, then there's obviously going to be a kind of harmony that comes out of that. The bickering is going to end. They're going to stop grumbling and complaining. However, I think the more intriguing concept at this point in the argument occurs in verse 15. When Paul speaks about why they should live this way, he says, Do all things without grumbling or complaining, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's an absolutely fascinating statement for a number of reasons. For one, this is fascinating because I think it gives us some critical input about the kind of suffering that's going on at Philippi. Remember, the crooked or twisted generation in Deuteronomy 32 is unbelieving Israel. Incidentally, at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul warns about a Judaizing influence that seems to be threatening the church at Philippi. Also, interestingly enough, in Acts 17, the Jews in the very next city that Paul visits... After Philippi, the city of Thessalonica, they're so jealous over Paul's success with the Gentiles that they actually sent representatives after Paul when he journeyed to Berea to stir up trouble there. Now, if they did that because of Paul's success with the Gentiles in Thessalonica, what do you think they're going to do once they hear about this church of Gentiles that's thriving just a few miles up the road in Philippi? I tend to think that's what's happening in Philippi. If you note here, Paul indicates that it's among this generation that they stand as lights to the world. Are you catching the imagery here? The Philippians are separated from the world. They're serving as a witness to them. But they're doing so among this twisted and crooked generation, which in the Old Testament is identified as unbelieving Israel. The picture seems to be that the unbelief of the Jews is serving as the backdrop for their witness. And given the persecution that's taking place in Philippi, this leads me to believe that this is probably a persecution that's being stirred up by some extremely zealous Jews. Paul wants the way they handle this persecution to serve as a witness to the Gentiles. And that leads me to the second element that's fascinating about this verse, and that's the fact that Paul says that they, the Philippians, are to shine as lights to the world. We've been talking about this recently in Sunday school class. You go back to the Old Testament. And who's supposed to be God's witness to the nations? It's Israel. They're the kingdom of priests. And this is exemplified in passages like Isaiah 42, where God says, with reference to Israel, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also uphold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. So Israel is supposed to be the light to the nations. But here Paul is saying that these Gentile believers are to serve as a light to the world. 
Why is that interesting? Well, it's, I don't think it's because it indicates the Gentiles have taken over this aspect of the mission. That's a fact that Jesus himself predicted before his death. It's a fact that Paul affirms at the end of the book of Acts. At this stage of history, Israel's rejection of the Messiah means that God will take the gospel to the nations through the nations. So that when the Messiah returns, there will be a remnant of the nations to preserve. You want to talk about God raising up children of Abraham from the very stones of the earth. There's really no better demonstration of that than this. God proclaiming the good news to the nations through the nations. It's fascinating, but again, I don't find that to be what's so very interesting. No, I find... Why I find this passage interesting is because of what Paul just said up in verses 12 to 13 when he tells the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. You see, does that phrase light, lights to the world, ring a bell at all? Does that sound familiar? It probably should because it's the same sort of language that Jesus uses over in Matthew 5 when Jesus says again to Israel in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. The point there, of course, is that God called Israel to be a witness to the nations. And Jesus is reminding them, it kind of defeats the purpose of lighting a lamp, then put it under a basket, which is exactly what Israel was doing in condemning the Gentiles instead of converting them. Now, the reason why that is significant is because right before that, Jesus also warns of what will happen to Israel if they ultimately fail to perform this mission through their self-righteous hypocrisy. He says, Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, literally if it's become worthless, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a threat. Jesus is telling Israel, God called you to be holy. And if you will not be holy according to the standard that I'm about to describe to you, if you take God's truth and then cover it up with your hypocrisy and self-righteousness, then God is going to throw you out so you can be trampled by men. You're just like bad salt, he says, so you'll be treated like bad salt. And in case you're wondering, that's exactly what God did. Just 40 years after Jesus' resurrection, one generation, God destroyed the temple and scattered the nation into exile. Again, this is the consequence that comes with failing to perform your calling. And after just saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both the will and the work for his good pleasure, Paul now reminds the Philippians that they are to live as lights to the world. The implication is that this is how God is working in them for his good pleasure. This is the special goal that he wants to accomplish. He wants them to serve as his witness. And if they will not serve as his witness, if they'll try to avoid persecution or rejection, either by disassociating themselves from their brothers or perhaps through some sort of theological compromise, then they can expect the same sort of fate. Again, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says. I think you can see why. So how does this work? How are the Philippians going to serve as a witness to the world? And I think there are two answers to that question. The first, of course, is through their perseverance in the gospel. Meaning as they maintain a pure gospel, one that's been untarnished by any kind of essential compromise, they will serve as witnesses to the world. Just like Paul showed us back in chapter 1. Persecution, right, often serves to spread the gospel, not squelch it. So, 
they will make the name of Christ known as they persevere in the faith. That's one way to answer this question. But the second is through their gospel-centered conduct, or to put it more specifically, through their harmony with one another, through their groupthink. You see this on display, I think, very well in the book of Acts. In Acts 2, the Christians respond to their newfound faith in the gospel with tremendous generosity. They're sharing all things in common. They're taking their meals together. They're going up to the temple to worship together. They're one. And Luke describes the effect like this. He says in Acts 2.46, continuing through verse 47, he says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. He says, Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. The implication seems to be that it is the unity, this, this love for one another that was leading the church to have favor with all the people. And the Lord was then adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And this is exactly what Jesus said over in Matthew 5, right? He said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's the same thing he says in John 13, 35, when he says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Make no mistake, the content of the gospel, right, is conveyed with our words. But its power is displayed through our actions. There are all these evangelistic strategies out there today where so-called visionaries try to tell us how we can make the church relevant to our culture. Friends, God has already laid out the blueprint, and the answer is with our love. It's when the world lives in darkness and wallows in the muck and pain of sin and then looks in on the church and sees a place where brothers and sisters actually care for one another, where they don't act like the world. They don't act out of self-interest and backstab each other to get ahead where instead they see a place where brothers and sisters put each other first and carry their burdens together, even if it means they have to sacrifice to do it. It's then that the world will begin to wonder, how do I get in on that? Because that, that's beautiful. Now, this isn't to say they'll suddenly all come flocking into the church, right? Because at the end of the day, you still have to proclaim the message. And you have to explain how to get in on that. And the message is most definitely not appealing to, nat- to the natural man. In fact, it got Jesus killed, right? So this isn't to say that everyone will become a Christian if we just love each other, because that's, that's most definitely not true. But at the same time, I think we should understand that while this sort of conduct does not guarantee the advancement of the gospel, we most definitely should not expect the gospel to advance without it. And that kind of witness, my friends, is the product of gospel-centered groupthink. It's when we determine to all set our mind on the same purpose and share in the same struggle that we end up living living in such harmony with one another that the words we say about Jesus carry meaning and the world straightens up and takes notice. So again, this is what groupthink looks like in action. It produces harmony and it leads to an enhanced witness. So if you want to know if you've adopted this sort of mindset or perhaps... I should say, if we have adopted that sort of mindset. And this is something to look for in our lives. If we've all set our mind on the common purpose of glorifying God through the proclamation of Christ as Lord, then we will most definitely proclaim Him. And we will proclaim Him together as one body, with one voice in perfect harmony. Let's look now at the fifth and final symptom of gospel-centered groupthink. 
And that's joy. Gospel-centered groupthink produces joy. We see this come out in verses 17 and 18. Once again, the Philippians are concerned about Paul's well-being. Look at what he says. Verse 17, he says, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Again, Paul has adopted this kind of thinking. And what's the result? He, he sits in jail for his faith when execution hangs in the balance, and he still rejoices. And why is that? Well, because this life of dedication to Christ has produced this faith in the Philippians, which is manifested in their worship. Paul has a single-minded devotion to Christ, and the result is that he can see the Philippians' faith and rejoice. Even in his, uh, he, can, he can take joy from their faith, even in his suffering, which is manifest. Their faith is manifest through this financial contribution, this sacrificial offering that they sent to Paul. Paul can look at that and even in his suffering find joy. In fact, if you notice here, Paul seems to picture his suffering as the drink offering that's being poured on their sacrifice. Meaning he's really seeing his life as the means and their sacrifice as the ends. They're offering up worship to God, which Paul is able to help facilitate through his suffering. And so Paul is able to rejoice in his circumstances through the unique expression of worship that it's able to produce for them. Again, this is what groupthink mindset produces. There isn't a mine and a yours, there's an ours. Paul is able to find pleasure in their obedience because he understands that the worship they're offering to God, they're offering together. It's for this same reason that Paul then implores him in verse 18. He says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He tells them that they should be able to find joy in their suffering in the same way that he finds joy in his. Their suffering is likewise producing an opportunity for Paul to demonstrate his worship to Christ through his love towards them. They can be a drink offering poured out on Paul's offering of faith just as he is to them. Therefore, they can both rejoice over how their suffering produces an opportunity for the other to express their love and give praise and honor to Christ. This is very unique. To find joy in other people's opportunity to serve God. And it's a rejoicing that can only be accomplished when the church begins to think as one. So often when we think of the good that God produces through suffering, we only think of it in terms of the way that it can benefit us. And that's because we're conditioned to think of ourselves as individual units. So if my suffering doesn't produce some immediate benefit for me, then I can't see the good in it. And that's as far as my vision goes in being able to discern the good in suffering. Listen, this obviously limits our capacity for joy. Since we can only rejoice in the good the suffering brings to me, how it benefits me. And sometimes it can be very difficult to see how my suffering benefits me. But when we broaden our thinking to consider not just how it benefits us, but others as well, suddenly it's much easier to see the good that God is producing through it and with this good find joy. That's a mindset that groupthink produces. When we think as one, we see the good that comes to others through our suffering and this in turn helps us to see the benefit of our pain. It may not always benefit me personally, but it does benefit us corporately. And when, it's, and, and when it's the common good that we prize, that gives us joy. 
I think of Christ, of course. You go back to last week's passage, for instance, and you wonder, how did Christ benefit from his suffering? How did Christ benefit from his suffering? I mean, Hebrews says that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. What was that? I mean, is it is the exaltation that happens at the end of his suffering? Right? He, he already had that at first, according to verse 6. He had that and let it go, only to regain it again in verses 9 through 11. So what did he gain? And you see, the answer is less what did he gain and more what did his father gain or even what did we gain as a result of his suffering. Remember, the whole point is that he wasn't looking out for his own interests, but for the interests of others. There's a sense in which you could say that he didn't have anything to gain as a result of his suffering if you're looking at it strictly from a personal level, an individual level. But if you're looking at it from a corporate level of God the Son along with God the Father or of God the Son along with his brethren, then it's an entirely different story. Sin defamed the name of his Father, and in dying he was able to glorify his Father's name. Sin brought suffering and death and captivity to his brethren, and in dying he was able to free them and give them life. If Jesus is only thinking of himself, then it's hard to reconcile how there's any benefit in his suffering. But if he's thinking about others, then there's great benefit, great cause for joy. And that's where the joy set before him is coming from. It's the restoration of the planet under his father's rule. It's the glorification of his brethren in the kingdom of heaven. His joy in suffering is derived less from the fact that he's thinking me and more from the fact that he's thinking us. And so once again, brothers and sisters, we can see the benefit that comes from this kind of mentality. Just like we saw with gospel psychosis, there's tremendous benefit to be derived from considering others more important than yourselves. Such thinking will not only produce godly fear and harmony and witness, it will also produce incredible joy. That's the irony of selfishness. You think that you'll be happy when you fight for your own interests. The reality is that true happiness is found in self-forgetfulness. It's found in Christ's likeness. And it's with this in mind that I want to announce a little break in our series in Philippians. I think we can see the great importance of moving together as one body. It's with that in mind that I want to take a little break from our series in Philippians over the next few weeks to deliver a series of messages I delivered almost three years ago called Body Life. We've been focusing quite a bit on evangelism over the past couple of months. I think this is a good place for us to pause for a moment and direct the attention inward on the types of attitudes that we should bring into our relationships in the body of Christ. And that's what we're going to be doing over the next four weeks. Of course, some of you are here for this series, but most of you weren't. Uh, either way, I think this will be a good reminder for all of us. So if you're wondering, how do we live together as one? You know, that, that, Kelly, that question that Kelly was asking me last week you're wondering that question as well, I'd encourage you to be here over the next four weeks as we move through this series together. In the meantime, let's close with prayer.